0: If you find a question or a cluster of questions that just baffle you having to do with scripture if you discover something uh, a claim that somebody else or a group of people make that you've never heard before and it seems to be a serious challenge to what you believed there is nothing new under the Sun there are new forms of old questions Mm. but there is no challenge to the Christian faith that has not been thought about and responded to by many many people frequently over the centuries and certainly in today's world
1: late biblical scholar, F.F. Bruce, noted, quote, "...at the beginning of its existence, the Christian church found itself equipped with a book, a collection of sacred scriptures which it inherited. It was not based on the book. It was based on a person, Jesus Christ, crucified under Pontius Pilate, raised from the dead by God and acknowledged by his followers as Lord of all. But the book bore witness to him. In this role, they found it indispensable." At the same time, they found the record of his life and teaching, his suffering and triumph, indispensable to their understanding of the book. In this, they were but following a precedent established by Jesus himself. Throughout his ministry, he appealed to the scriptures. End quote. The Bible, the 66 different books bound together in one volume, 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament, written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. There is nothing like it in the world. The Church has held to these scriptures as inspired by God, authoritative, profitable for teaching, correction, and rebuke, inerrant, and wholly trustworthy for everything pertaining to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. There has been a resurgence of criticism leveled against the Bible in the last decade or so, largely due to what many have called new atheism. But there really is nothing new about new atheism, and the criticisms leveled against the Bible are also nothing new. Nevertheless, we should be ready to give a defense for the Bible's trustworthiness to those who ask about the hope that is in us, and the questions will come. Doesn't the Bible contain errors? Aren't there contradictions in the Bible? What about all those different translations? Science has disproved the Bible, hasn't it? Miracles are just myths and stories. They don't happen anymore. People don't rise from the dead. How can you possibly believe any of it? And why would God allow evil? And if the universe is all about the existence of life on earth, why did God make it so incredibly huge and apparently lifeless? Sometimes these questions catch us off guard. Maybe you've been asked them yourself. We don't feel prepared to answer them. Maybe we don't have good answers ourselves. We aren't Bible scholars, historians, or scientists. And for some, these questions often make it tempting to walk away from Christianity altogether. Take, for example, New Testament scholar Dr. Bart Ehrman. Who writes that he left the Christian faith largely because, quote, there is so much senseless pain and misery in the world that I came to find it impossible to believe that there is a good and loving God who is in control, despite my knowing all the standard rejoinders that people give. End quote. Add to this the difficulty of modern historical critical scholarship of the Bible which cast doubt on the historicity and reliability of Scripture. As Ehrman claims, quote, If the findings of historical criticism are right, then some kinds of theological claims are certainly to be judged as inadequate and wrong-headed. It would be impossible, I should think, to argue that the Bible is a unified whole, inerrant in all its parts, inspired by God in every way, end quote. cosmologist Sean Carroll who is also not a believer suggests that quote if the eventual appearance of life were an important consideration for God when he was designing the universe it is hard to understand why life seems so unimportant in the final product we live in a galaxy with more than a hundred billion stars in a universe with more than a hundred billion galaxies all of this splendor is completely superfluous as far as life is concerned end quote." Note, however, both Ehrman and Carroll's objections are rooted in their own perspectives, their own understanding. Ehrman says, quote, I came to find it impossible to believe, end quote. and Carroll's admission that quote, it is hard to understand why. End quote. Their scholarly credentials nevertheless make their objections seem more credible. The problem of evil and the vastness of the cosmos seem to Ehrman and Carroll as insurmountable difficulties for believing in God. But scripture tells us that the one who created the cosmos was himself a man of sorrows who took the form of a slave and was despised, rejected, and eventually put to death. He created the cosmos not for the centrality of human life on earth, but for his glory. Skeptical objections like those offered by Ehrman and Carroll do influence how one views the text of Scripture. But Scripture has the power to respond to the atheist critiques. The Bible has stood the test of time. There are no new objections under the sun. As Hebrews 4.12 says, "...for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow." able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. On this special episode of Good Heavens, I talk with author and scholar Dr. Craig Blomberg, who knows a thing or two about answering critics of the Bible. Our conversation focuses on his very helpful and down-to-earth book, Can We Still Believe the Bible? An Evangelical Engagement with Contemporary Questions. Dr. Blomberg is Distinguished Professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary in Littleton, Colorado. He holds a B.A. from Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois, an M.A. from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, and a Ph.D. from the University of Aberdeen, Scotland. Dr. Blomberg is the author of 15 books and has co-authored or co-edited 10 more, along with more than 150 journal articles and chapters in multi-authored works. His books include four on the historical reliability and interpretation of parts or all of the Bible, especially the Gospels, two on interpreting and preaching in the parables, three commentaries on Matthew, 1 Corinthians, and James, a textbook on Jesus and the Gospels, and another on Acts through Revelation, a handbook on exegetical method, a New Testament theology, and three books on material possessions in the Bible. He is a member of the Committee on Bible Translation for the New International Version, and of the Committee tasked with producing the 35th Anniversary Edition of the NIV Study Bible, to be released in 2020. Well, you have quite a compendium of books that you have written, and uh, very well written. I am. We're going to be talking today about your book, "Can We Still Believe the Bible?" An Evangelical Engagement with Contemporary Questions, and you have six excellent chapters about big arguments and in-house debates of things that uh, are brought up in higher biblical criticism in the circles in which you travel. So first of all, I wanted to start simply with an observation you make about um, sort of an anti-supernaturalistic bias in uh, critical scholarship today. Can you explain what is that? What's going on there?
0: Well, that's a... Fancy way of saying that uh, there certainly are uh, some biblical scholars, although not as many as there used to be. uh, But there are still a fair number who uh, begin with the a priori that anything that uh, requires uh, a God, Mm. like uh, miracles, like uh, genuine uh, knowledge of the future that couldn't just be guessed at. Mm. Um, is something that is uh, impossible because they have ruled out uh, that potential dimension of uh, human existence from the outset. So then when you get to passages like that, obviously you have to come up with some other explanations mm. uh, other than what the church has historically held.
1: Mm-hmm. You talk about, uh, in chapter 6, you bring this up, um, do the miracles... Uh, the supernatural nature of Scripture. Do the miracles make the Bible mythical? And in your research, how would you differentiate between a mythical miracle and the kind of supernatural miracle act that you see recorded in the pages of Scripture? What are your primary differences that you see there?
0: Most people use the word myth to mean simply something that didn't happen and therefore uh, a story that is fictitious Um, It may be invented to illustrate uh, some truth about the nature of life and human existence. Um, But what's described as having happened uh, didn't really ever happen.
1: Mm. So uh, Jesus and a lot of the Old Testament gets compared to a lot of the more ancient myths it's a common atheistic objection as you say that myth means in their vernacular myth means something didn't happen um, the 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 new testament talks about jesus especially in john i've been reading your book in parallel with this one about uh signs the sameons, the signs in john um, right. it, that is that a can you explain the the concept of the sign and what the purpose of of jesus's miracles were as they're recorded in in the new testament they seem to be they seem to in other words they seem to lack that showiness about it that seems to be so prevalent in in other miraculous stories that jesus's miracles seem to meet needs that's not just a random supernatural display of power that somebody asked him to do a trick or something there's there's certain definitive characteristics of a biblical miracle would you outline your understanding of that especially when it comes to john
0: right um john uses uh, a term uh, that uh, Translates very well into English, uh, a sign uh, that uh, is a pointer to a reason why uh, people would come to faith in Jesus. And in the entire uh, purpose statement of the gospel that appears in John 20, uh, verses 30 and 31, he refers to everything that uh, has been written thus far. Uh, In his book, and he says, these things are written that you might believe in the name of the Son of God and uh, believing in him have eternal life. Hmm. Um, It's not that the the miracles don't function that way ever in uh, the other three Gospels. They often do, um, but John makes it explicit that that's uh, one of the key purposes. Hmm. If you're reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke – Perhaps a a key verse that will jump out at you, and there's a form of it in both Matthew and in Luke, where Jesus is accused of uh, when he casts demons out of demon-possessed individuals, Mm. of doing so by the power of Beelzebub, which is a a name for Satan or the devil. And he says, um, well, let's think about this logically. If I'm casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, then by whose power do your sons, and he's speaking to the Jewish leaders, Mm. uh, because there were other Jewish exorcists in the day. Uh, He says, by whose power do your sons cast them out? Are you going to apply that uh, fairly across the board? But then he adds, but if I cast them out by the power or the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Mm. So consistently in the New Testament gospels, uh, signs are a pointer to the arrival of god's kingly reign a new phase in human history with the person of jesus and then logically if uh, a kingdom has arrived it means that a king has arrived the yes. uh, long-awaited jewish messiah
1: yes and you the exorcism is not limited to first century Palestine, because on page 182, you recount a story of something your wife was involved with. Can you mind sharing that a little bit?
0: Um, There are numerous uh, situations around the world. There are parts of the world uh, that uh, are much more open uh, to belief in the supernatural than in the so-called post-Christian West, Hmm. uh, where uh, these kinds of things happen quite commonly. But uh, we have certainly uh, seen it uh, and heard very credible uh, stories from people who are good friends. Um, The one I recount in the book happened at uh, a church uh, 10 or 12 years ago uh, that we were a part of. Um, It was an urban congregation. We had a lot of street people Mm. and uh, doors were open and people would come and go sometimes uh, off of the street and back onto it. And one uh, Sunday evening, which is when the church met, um, a woman walked in that nobody recognized, looking pretty unkempt, possibly a homeless person. We didn't know. Um, I wasn't there, but my wife was, and uh, um, a few people were starting to uh, arrive, but like so many groups these days, uh, not too many people came early, not that many people <laughs> came on time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, all of a sudden, the woman fell on the floor and looked like she was possibly having a grand mal seizure. Oh, wow. Um and so uh one of the staff uh, people who was there immediately called 911
2: mm-hmm.
0: but then as we were waiting for the paramedics to come uh went over and um after a period of time uh she calmed down uh, enough uh to uh, be approachable and uh, at first uh, uh, the staff person and, and some other people who were there early just began to pray to pray out loud pray Quietly, but but mm. um But as uh, things progressed, it seemed as if something was going on uh, spiritually uh, and not just physically. Um, and our senior pastor, who was contacted right away, was en route. Uh, and when he arrived, uh, he um, called on. Uh, the woman, uh, as if there might be a, a demon in her, mm. and uh, a voice responded that was a very deep, bass, guttural voice that Ooh. you wouldn't expect to come out of a small woman, right? And uh, to make a long story, only medium, um, he <laughs> called very forcefully uh, upon the demon to come out of her, and she immediately went limp, um, wow. and uh, then after a period of some moments, uh, came to and had no recollection of anything that had happened. Uh, it wasn't long after that, the paramedics came. They checked her out, uh, could find nothing wrong with her, and uh, she left. Wow. And we never saw her again. I wish I could tell you that, oh, and then she became a Christian, and then she got, oh, we have no idea what I don't happened.
1: Know. Right. But I think you make an excellent point about the post-Christian West. We're kind of like jesus's hometown now where few miracles are that's done. right <laughs> <laughs> uh we are kind of I the nazarene
0: miracles there because of their unbelief
1: <laughs> yes exactly um and we're since we're kind of touching on john a little bit i i i appreciated what your thoughts were on uh, page 136 137 you start talking about the harmonization you mentioned the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke and then of course there's john and uh you know you have another book that i've been reading the the, uh, his, the historical reliability of john's gospel um and you point out that uh this this idea of trying to harmonize these accounts just the idea of just harmonizing all the gospel accounts is uh you, you talk about the the epithet here well that's just apologetics or that's the harmonizing approach and uh this is this is kind of a, an approach in in the scholarly world that is Uh, As you say, "quote dooms one to rejection and ridicule." Is that is that uh, largely what's (laughs) going on in the in the world of scholarship when you try to harmonize the gospels? It's certainly
0: not what goes on uh, in the uh, evangelical Christian world of scholarship, but in the the broader academic guild, there is a sense uh, that uh, taking what at first glance appear to be quite different. gospels or portions of the gospels and explain them as each parts of a larger whole or a larger narrative uh, understandably because some people over the centuries have come up with some very fanciful reconstructions sure but on the other hand uh, there are times when uh, any uh, two people narrating uh, the same event, whether they're formal historians or eyewitnesses to a traffic accident, Mm -hmm. are going to uh, highlight different things that they saw that are, in fact, both parts of uh, the whole story of things that did happen. Mm -hmm. And so to to just take that kind of harmonization and write it off um, a priori. Uh, Up front without just going on a case by case basis and saying, well, let's let's look at this. Is this inherently plausible? Might it Mm. might it be? Uh, Sometimes it might be. Other times it may be foolish.
1: Okay. the so there is an acceptable you're not just doing apologetics when you're when you're offering. uh, The church has done this ever since the scriptures have been extant that we have been trying to uh, create possible. Uh, ways in which these things can be harmonized, I think you point out elsewhere that uh it would be problematic if Jesus only ever said these things once right
0: that's right when When you have uh short proverbial types of sayings that uh, often appear in the Gospels without a lot of context, those are precisely the things you would have expected him to repeat and sometimes in various slightly different forms. On numerous occasions. To to give you an example of what you don't want to do, you don't want to go to the Last Supper um, and say, well, there are several differences between Matthew's and Mark's and Luke's account of Jesus' Last Supper, so maybe he had three Last Suppers.
1: (laughs) Yes, Uh, you point that out.
0: Well, then then only one of them could have been last. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's right. There are some some ways to bring discredit on yourself, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that other examples couldn't be credible.
1: Right, right. I like what you said about, um, oftentimes I see this, I mean, I think, you know, Bart Ehrman is chiefly responsible Mm -hmm. for repeating this analogy, that the way the Gospels were developed was sort of akin to the modern children's game of telephone. And you say that's about as far from what actually happened in antiquity. What, what What makes Scripture, Old and New Testament, how unique is it? historically speaking from the ancient world is there anything even remotely comparable to the to the extant manuscripts we have to what they're conveying to how long it's been preserved is is it a standalone text or is there anything comparable to what we have in scripture in terms of the the historicity and the preservation of the of the text is this unique in all the world or
0: there are certainly um parts that you can uh compare other things to um you you threw out several different topics there. If the question is, do the contents of uh, a particular part of a book of the Bible sometimes have partial parallels elsewhere? Yes, sometimes Mm -hmm. they do. If the question is, are there other texts from the ancient world that have been reasonably carefully preserved? Uh, The answer is, yes, there are, though there are none. Uh, that come remotely close to having the number of manuscripts uh, and attestation the the various biblical books have. Uh, If uh, your point is saying, uh, are there other religions and worldviews that have uh, historical claims somewhat parallel to some things in the Bible? Yes, at times. But what's fascinating is, if you put all of the narrative of the Bible together, mm-hmm. um, and of course, not all of the Bible is narrative. You've got Psalms, you've got Proverbs, you've got uh, poetry, you have letters in the New Testament uh, punctuating all of this. But if you take the basic storyline, no other um, religion, no other ideology, no other epic uh, narrative of any group of people in the history of the world begins with creation and ends with new creation and contains in between what claims to be a, a meta narrative, an overarching story hmm. that explains where human beings came from, how we find ourselves in the situation we find ourselves in today, and where we are going in the long term, there are bits and pieces of all of those that you can find in various religions, but no one else even makes a claim in the form of a narrative from start to finish the way the Christian scriptures do.
1: That is fantastic, and that's the uniqueness of what we have in the in the scriptures. And that was the point of my question that, that in terms of a narrative, and there's no. Uh, Like a lot of the ancient Near Eastern narratives, uh, you don't have a theophany in Scripture. You don't have a development of where God came from. Uh, It just begins with an assumption that God is and that God is the creator, which brings me to my next question, which is the first couple of chapters in your book um, dealing with the corruption of the texts. And uh, the the political canonization of scripture, the alleged politicalization of of how we got the the canon of scripture. So first, briefly, if you could ad- address, I know Ehrman brings up that point of how many hundreds of thousands of errors or or differences that there are. Maybe not errors, but the the, the differences. Kind of address that that big number that you talk about in the beginning, and then uh, and then maybe move on to you know briefly uh, the the canon and how we got the canon.
0: There is a brand new book that uh, has come out within the last couple of weeks with University Press uh, that I wish had come out uh, early enough for me to have utilized it. Called "The Myths and Mistakes of New Testament Textual Criticism."
1: I've seen it. One of
0: the co one of the uh, co editors is uh, on staff here at Tyndale House, and I've gotten to know him. And uh, he even uh, he and his co-author, who I have also met four years ago when I was here, um, gently take me to task for a couple of mistakes I made in the very book that you were reading, Uh-oh. Um, because I followed someone else who did not have the latest and most up-to-date set of statistics. Okay. So uh, the numbers are the numbers are always changing uh as we as we learn more and more but the point is uh however many uh variants in the manuscripts you want to uh, come up with as a number and mm-hmm. Herman says there might be 200 there might be 300 there might even be 400,000 right um first of all you have to realize that those are scattered among Uh, probably more than 5,000 Greek manuscripts and probably well more than double that number in uh, ancient translations into other languages. And then on top of that, the number uh, is exceeded by thousands when you find quotations in early Christian writers. Mm. And what kinds of changes are we talking about? Mm -hmm. Peter Gurry, a man who is one of the co-editors of that book, uh, who teaches at Phoenix Seminary, um, estimates that there is one unique variant for every 434 words. Wow. Now, okay, I still might start counting words in my Bible, and, well, if there's even one mistake, if there are even 20 mistakes and there are significant ones, then I might be concerned. But the next question you have to ask is, what kind of variants are we talking about? The yes. vast majority simply involve uh, the use or non-use of a small word, how something might be spelled, the word order that doesn't affect uh, meaning at all. And in fact, uh, students who go to uh, major uh, Christian seminaries and theological colleges around the world uh, sometimes will be required and will always have the opportunity uh, to study uh, a little bit from the Greek New Testaments that have been published, the modern standard editions, and there will be numerous footnotes uh, to the most significant variants. There are about 1,500 or so roughly in the United Bible Society's very standard edition of the Greek New Testament. Mm -hmm. And even if you never do that, get uh, an NIV, get an ESV, get a New American Standard, get your your favorite solid modern English translation, and there will be three, four hundred footnotes. And read for yourself what kinds of things we're talking about.
1: Uh, Yeah. Uh, you you There are only
0: a couple dozen that affect up to an entire verse. Uh And then there are the the two very famous ones uh, that affect 12 verses each, the story of the woman caught in adultery in John Uh and the longer ending of Mark.
1: Yeah, so those—it's—it's it's important to note um, that these variations. I mean, you, I think it's you—you you pointed out in the book that Ehrman tucks this significance note in a footnote, and he admits that that the hundreds of thousands that he suggests might be there—the variations, the hundreds of thousands of variations—do not affect uh, in any way. the the theological underpinnings or the message or the, the overall narrative of, of where these discrepancies. They they do not.
0: The the, the best way to phrase it is to say um, there is no doctrine or ethical teaching of the Christian church that depends entirely or even largely on uh, a text where there are significant variants Uh, It's not that uh, you can't find uh, a passage where uh, if you followed a certain variant, you would have one more text supporting the Trinity. Mm. Um, But the oldest and most reliable texts don't have it. The point is simply that whatever you do with that debate in that passage, there are plenty of other undisputed passages that teach the Trinity.
1: Yes, yes. So that's... Definitely something I wanted to cover. There's no, that, you hear that number, I think it's Dan Wallace who says that the reason we have these variants is because we have an embarrassment of riches. That's right. There's no other uh, document from antiquity with with as many extant copies as we have of the New Testament or the scriptures in general. Um, Which leads me to my next question briefly. uh, This is something I I hear from skeptics quite often, uh, that uh, Constantine sort of bought off the bishops And put the sword down (laughs) on the table and split the sword in half, you know, and told everybody this is the way it's going to be, follow me or die or something like that. But uh, that's a definitive historical myth in terms of you know Constantine (laughs) slamming his fist down on the table and says this is it's going to be. So what went on at Nicaea? Can you clear that up for us?
0: Um, Very little having to do with the the choice of the books of the Bible. Uh, You actually have to go different councils all together um and you uh is 323 um people who have ever been to a, a church uh like many liturgical churches that recite on a regular basis the nicene creed will already know the answer to that question uh it was a, a council at which uh Delegates from around the uh, Christian world, which was at that point roughly about the same as the Roman Empire in Mm -hmm. size and and extent, uh, discussed uh, what they wanted to formulate as the most crucial and foundational beliefs about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm. The three uh, parts of the Nicene Creed each begin, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the remarkable uh, testimonies to uh, the power of popular fiction in this century is that it would be very difficult for you to find any published work prior to 2003 that ever made the claim that Nicaea had anything to do with the canon of scripture, Dan Brown in a wildly popular work of fiction, he has a subtitle called a novel and a book called the Da Vinci code made Mm -hmm. that up and people now believe it as if it were true. It's really astonishing.
1: So that, 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 That's only been around for the last 15, 16 years.
0: You can find the idea that um, the choice of the canon was a political power play. Mm -hmm. Uh, For centuries, that has been put forward and debunked repeatedly. Uh, There are uh, numerous lists uh, that discuss the emerging canon, Uh, beginning, as I say, in the mid-2nd century and on through the 3rd century, all before Nicaea, when uh, Christianity had no Christian emperor, when Christianity had no power base. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can find uh, all of the books that, uh, if you want to use the language, made it into the New Testament, mentioned uh, in one or more or in some cases, most of those lists, long before Christianity had any power base to appeal to.
1: Yeah, and it, it's it's interesting to remind ourselves that Nicaea was further away removed from uh, the events in the New Testament than we are from our Constitution in the United States, uh, historically speaking. So these the books that we have today are are, were pretty much in circulation by the time of the council, widely circulated and widely believed to be authoritative in terms of doctrine and everything. So it was not a, let's figure out what books are going to go into the Bible council at all. So fantastic. Thank you for that. It's a nice, concise clearing up of that uh, that myth, um, which brings me to another issue that you bring up briefly in your book. You talk about uh, anachronistic methodologies that are applied to modern biblical exegesis so in other words mm. to to uncomplicate that language that means that we're applying modern literary conceptions uh, a lot of which i think you make an excellent point about the scientific precision of our culture and the way we know right epistemologically that we're very exact when it comes to numbers and uh, exact quotations in newspapers and magazines and footnotes and we are very exact when it comes to our literature and our knowledge this is not something that was in the minds of the writers, you know, 2,000 years ago. They did not have this chronological exactitude. And it reminded me of a quote that C.S. Lewis wrote in uh, the end of Out of the Silent Planet, where he's he talks about that there is a mythology that follows in the wake of science. And I think your book, you did an excellent job of actually giving an example of what I think Lewis was talking about, that we have this scientific mentality of precision and exactitude, and we're just sort of a priori assuming that's how we should interpret uh, the scriptures. Can you speak to that a little bit more? What are we doing wrong when we bring our modern assumptions into the text?
0: And and it's a a problem that, uh, yes, somebody uh, of a a skeptical uh, bent can say, oh, that's an error when it's just a a less than... uh, uh, Terribly precise uh, statement. But unfortunately, um, very conservative Christians can also get uh, misled this way. Mm. Uh, I just had a conversation uh, this last Sunday night. I had the privilege of traveling to Cardiff in Wales and speaking at a a wonderful church there. And one of the men who was on the church staff um, who has Not had uh, the opportunity for quite as much uh, theological or biblical training as some. Uh, The whole idea that I mentioned that there are no quotation marks in any of the ancient manuscripts for Hmm. centuries. There were no quotation marks in any ancient Greek or Hebrew documents, and there was no felt need for them. And so because modern translations would look strange if we said, and then Jesus said, but we didn't put in quotation marks. Right. Every, every translation puts in quotation marks, but we should not be misled by them, mm. uh, especially when it, it's dealing with Jesus or uh, Jewish characters in the Gospels. They weren't even speaking Greek in the first place. They were speaking right. Aramaic. And so what we have are translations of what they said. And if anybody's ever uh, learned a foreign language, you know, you can't always translate somebody word for word. And sometimes there's no word at all. And you have to use a whole phrase to explain what they're talking about. Yes. But then put on top of that, that uh, there was no claim being made. Um, for that level of exactitude. And that observation alone uh, clears up a huge number of the tiny little differences that you find among parallel passages.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: and unfortunately, I was having this conversation, not with a skeptic, but with a, a wonderful Christian man who was hearing this for the first time, and he wasn't quite sure he could buy it.
1: Mm. <laughs> Mm. well it 's interesting though you point out very very well here that when we see quotation marks in our Bibles, whatever version we may be having, that we 're thinking just like the editor of The New York Times is thinking when he goes to press about an article, was that exactly what the president said uh, verbatim, word for word, so there 's this distinction between you know our modern conceptual understanding if i 'm reading a text, this is a quote, this must be the exact word-for-word word things that Jesus said, rather than it being an approximation, which a lot of people, and I think you point out in your book, uh, a lot of people raised in a particular evangelical tradition or a non-evangelical tradition or a very strict denomination are so literal on the, exact, the exactitude that when they hear the argument that you present, uh, this is enough for a lot of people to just sort of start questioning Christianity or just maybe walk away from it altogether. But that's tragically unnecessary because of the fluidity of of, of the writers. Right, do you believe um that the, the New Testament writers and in, in that genre in that time period and and what they were doing, um, they were not they were okay with sort of the I think there's two terms I'm not terribly familiar with, Ipsima verba, Ipsissima verba right. and ipsissima vox. There's the, the the idea of capturing the idea versus the idea of capturing the exact words. And
0: right. the two the two uh mouthfuls in Latin simply mean uh the very own words and the very own voice. Hmm. Um and the voice or as Daryl Bach at Dallas Seminary in, in countless uh, contexts likes to put it, the gist of what somebody said. That's
1: that's yes. what mattered. Okay, and that's what the new So t- so we, we don't want to make the error of going and saying, Well, look, in Luke Jesus says this, but in John it's slightly different and and so, just that's was a refreshing reminder to me of of just the the, the fluidity and capturing the the intent, the gist, rather than being literal word for word. That's a it's a great point to keep in mind. All right, we I just want to again thank you for your time, sir. I would like to wrap up on what the one of the biggest questions that I hear a lot of uh, from skeptics and and even among evangelicals is this idea of inerrancy of the scriptures. I know it's a big kettle okay. of fish, but a couple of a couple of things to unpack. First, what is a good working definition of inerrancy? Um, if we're gonna be talking about this in any sort of intelligent way, what's the, the chief definition of the word as it's used? I wanna use it appropriately. And then what are some basic drawbacks that sort of impinge upon or call into question as some would do uh, this idea of inerrancy? So first, what is it? And then secondly, what are some objections and how might we answer those objections?
0: I like to uh think of uh, definitions and I've seen several of them that that really make four points to them. Um and I am going to uh in a world with quotation marks uh not quote anyone but give you the gist <laughs> of it. Excellent. Um excellent. the Old and New Testaments um when all information, all facts everything relevant to uh, their interpretation uh, has been discovered. That's point one. And we've discovered an awful lot of stuff, but we haven't found it all yet. Mm -hmm. Um, The original manuscripts, the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, um, as they were first written before any textual variants emerged, will be shown to be true when correctly interpreted. There's the third part. Mm. Um, You don't interpret a parable as if it was something that actually happened. Mm. There may be uh, proverbs that are not 100% absolute statements, but they're generalizations of what happens with all other things being equal. Um, I have little idea what it would mean to say that a praise Psalm is inerrant other than David really was praising the Lord. Right. Um, (laughs) So each part of scripture has to be interpreted according to its own literary form or genre. Now let's review the definition. Um, When all the facts are known, the scriptures, the Old and New Testaments in their entirety, in the original manuscripts will be shown to be wholly true, correctly when correctly interpreted in everything that they affirm. Um, there are tons and tons of things that the Bible talks about, but there are plenty of topics that the Bible does not talk about. It never claims to be uh, a textbook of modern science. It does not claim to uh, have all the truth that anybody ever needs to be uh, a good psychologist.
1: Right. I, not... I hear the the objection a lot. You know, I think you have the example in your book: "The trees of the field were, will clap their hands" is not a scientific <laughs> statement about uh, about uh, botany or anything.
0: Exactly. What 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 are the the problems with this? Well, um, I mean, one thing I hear an awful lot is, oh, by the time you make all those caveats, uh, the definition dies to the death of a thousand qualifications. And I go, wait, <laughs> wait a minute. That was four.
2: Yeah, right. That
0: wasn't a thousand. Yeah. Um, and if you're going to be a lawyer, if you're going to be a medical doctor, if you're going to be uh, an economist, you're going to have qualifications and caveats in larger numbers than that for
2: most Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So that's not really a defeater. Mm-mm. The other thing, though, that I would want to stress even more uh, you talk about people who've walked away from the faith for, for tragic and unnecessary reasons. And it's precisely the story that Bart Ehrman tells, assuming he's being honest uh, in his introduction to misquoting Jesus. Mm. Raised in a time and a place when at least his perception in conservative christianity was if you find one error mm. that you cannot get your head around in any reasonable way then you might as well just give it all up because you're on a slippery slope down a mountain top and you won't be able to stop mm. until you hit rock bottom that is patently absurd and mm. it is not what historians do in any other walk of life. Hmm. If there were a handful of trivial errors in scripture, yes, it would mean our understanding of scripture would have to be modified some. My own daughter, at one point, when she was much younger, wrestling with some of these things, once asked me, Daddy, how much of scripture do you think has to be true? for Christianity to be true. Hmm. And I gave her the answer that I learned in seminary from the eminently respectable and conservative Don Carson, who said the more something is central to the Bible's storyline, the more important it is. Hmm. The more tangential it is, you could have countless Tangential problems, but if the story of God creating humanity, good human sinning, a plan of redemption beginning with Abraham and his descendants, and the major contours of the story of the history of Israel in the Old Testament culminating in the coming of that longed for liberator Jesus, Mm. major events of the Gospels and the Book of Acts the autobiographical parts of the letters of Paul and that there really will be new heavens and new earth one day and a judgment day for all humanity. You have Christianity. That's right. And I don't care whether Goliath was nine foot six or six foot six.
1: (laughs) He fell. (laughs) (laughs) with <laughs> <laughs> a big crash it was a big crash right and it sums up what you just said was kind of a a restatement of what you say on page 134 and 135 um of course there are differences but it is striking to see as well how much agreement there is concerning the authority of the bible the doctrine of the trinity the attributes of god and you're referencing here the denominations and associations and parachurch organizations whose mission statements you can read and see just how much widespread agreement there is centered upon Christ and who he is and what he has done um, for us. It is really, and, and you, I, I think you helped me to make the case that the errantist, uh, as you say on page 135, those who kind of take an Arantist view of Scripture, like Dr. Ehrman, must pick and choose which parts of Scripture to treat as inspired and therefore truthful, or it, it's a hopelessly subjective endeavor. So there's no widespread agreement about Arantist. Theology and errantist exegesis there is uh, that you have with the doctrine and the body uh, of evangelicalism and all of the uh, the agreement that we do have, and that I think speaks to the to the wonderful unity of which you spoke of early about uh, about the narrative and the uniqueness of scripture so thank you, Dr. blomberg so much for your insights and uh, your wisdom and a wonderfully written book that uh, I have been inspired to reconsider a lot of these issues myself. It's helping me to grapple and deepen my faith. So I appreciate it. Is there any last words of wisdom or anything I'm going to add? You'll appreciate this. And it's kind of a, kind of a humorous question. What's the best translation of the Bible? (laughs) I read that. (laughs) I read that in your book. So can you speak to that? I mean, there's a lot of multiple English translations. And I know that was kind of a cheeky question based on what you were writing in your book, but, um, you make the point the best that...
0: translation the best english translation for english language speakers depends entirely on your purpose and on your audience mm. so uh, what i like to do when people ask me that question is to say the best translation for what context for yes. what purpose right you are uh, doing serious study um painstaking research but uh, have neither the facility with the original languages nor um, an ability to figure out which writer you trust who does refer to those languages, then you want what is often called a formally equivalent translation. Uh, The New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the uh, New Revised Standard Version are probably the three most widely known and used in that category. Hmm. If you are uh, a young person and uh, you are ready for more than uh, a story Bible and a picture book, um, or if you are an adult who, for whatever reason, has not had the chance Uh, or ability to learn to read English well, or if you are somebody who's learning English as a second language, then you most definitely want uh, what is often called a dynamically equivalent translation
2: Mm. uh,
0: that prioritizes readability uh, Mm. of everything else. And the New Living Translation is by far the the best-selling of the uh, contemporary options there. For a broad cross-section of the kind of people that show up in a typical church uh, that's large enough to have people of lots of different ages and educational backgrounds and uh, uh, classes, uh, socioeconomic brackets, you want what is sometimes called an optimally equivalent translation Mm. that tries to come out with the best possible balance in each passage between being literal, but also being clear. And a translation like the NIV, the New International Version, the Christian Standard Bible, um, used to be the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and the New Common English Bible are maybe the, the three best examples of that. Okay. Um, what would be uh, one word of wisdom uh, at the end of it all to leave with people? If you find a question or a cluster of questions that just baffle you, having to do with scripture, if you discover something, uh, a claim that, Somebody else or a group of people make that you've never heard before, and it seems to be a serious challenge to what you believed. There is nothing new under the sun, there are new forms of old questions, mm. but there is no challenge to the Christian faith that has not been thought about and responded to by many, many people frequently over the centuries and certainly in today's world and with all of the stuff that's available online you can probably find uh, a website that responds to the website that challenges you don't ever make a decision about important things about life and religion and the bible Without weighing both sides without discovering that there are both sides, yeah because they do exist,
1: yeah, your book was exceptionally fair in that regard, and you did a, a wonderful job i thought of of showing both sides of the coin, which is what it was appreciative. It was not just a narrow focus, it was on on you know this side or this camp. You did a nice job of, of presenting arguments on both sides, and I think I think what you just said there is kind of the difference between there 's a wealth. We have 2,000 years of church history. There's a wealth of information out there. There is a dearth of wisdom in applying that information. Yeah. And uh, you can, without the background and the the in-depth patience that you need to cultivate a perspective on something, uh, it's you're easily swayed one way or the other. I think a lot of people go into Bart Ehrman's class sort of unprepared for the other side, if you will. Um, But I think you do a great service in providing this information, additional resources, the nuance that is so desperately needed in these important conversations. So thank you, Craig, so much for joining us. Uh, I appreciate it and blessings to you and your in your uh, sabbatical and your studying. And I can't wait for this book on the historical Jesus to come out. That's exciting. When is it going to come out? When do you think?
0: I think the contract has me submitting it by the end of 2022, so hopefully sometime in 2023.
1: Oh wow! Okay, so we have some time to wait there. I'm gonna. (laughs)
0: You have a little time to wait. Catch up on the other things I've written that you haven't finished.
1: Okay, okay, and uh, (laughs) I will. We will be in touch for you being able to participate, perhaps uh, live with us in our atheist and Christian book club sometime next year. That would be great fun. All right, Dr. B, thank you so much.
0: You are very welcome.